Welcome to the Helping Children Thrive podcast, where we talk about ways to improve your child's health and recovery. I'm your host, Momina Sidi, and I'm a certified pediatric functional medicine health coach. At Helping Children Thrive, it is our aim to educate and empower parents and practitioners with integrative approaches to children's health conditions. Along with this hope that our children can recover, I welcome you all. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year from the Helping Children Thrive. I hope this year brings you health, healing, and peace to you and to your family. On the episode today, our guest is Dr. Julia Rockledge. She's a professor of clinical psychology. She is the author of the book, The Better Brain. Um, And her research interest is centered around the role of nutrition in the expression of treatment of mental illness, from ADHD to depression to stress. Um, We will get into a lot of conversations with Dr. Julia about the role of nutrition and and how to incorporate that into our daily lives to really help our children um, and, and us adults in dealing with a lot of our mental health problems. So let's just listen in. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to have you on today. Good. Yeah, no, I'm delighted. I'm always happy to talk about um, mental health and nutrition, the association between the two. Yeah, I've been reading your book, um, The Better Brain, and it is just it's amazing on so many different levels because it gives so many opportunities for parents to look beyond um, the conventional realm of what's out there um, for, for children and for the treatment of, of mental health for, for various children. Um, I wanted to start off by just asking, how did you um, kind of, you, you were conventionally trained. So how did you move away from that into looking at um, you know, changing your focus towards nutrition as a form of treatment. Sure. So um, you are right. I was very conventionally trained, which basically implies and translates to mean that uh, nutrition was viewed as irrelevant to, to mental health uh, problems. Um, and that's a pretty typical training for lots of psychologists and psychiatrists and medical professionals, pretty standard uh, and, I, and I think that's in part and parcel because we had this explosion of medications that looked like they were miracle cures. And so our attention diverted from thinking about our food environment, which we knew was important and our ancestors knew was important, to thinking that essentially people inherited maybe a genetic difference or something happened that led them to have some level of a deficiency in neurotransmitters that can only be could only be corrected with a molecule like an antidepressant or an anxiolytic or something like that so I think that's probably part and parcel uh, that plays that certainly played a role in uh, reducing our attention and and thinking about the importance of nutrition so, uh, so, but when I was doing my PhD under Bonnie Kaplan was my PhD supervisor and she's the co-author in, on the book, I, she was approached by some families from Southern Alberta, Canada, who had, um, who were treating themselves and their family members with nutrients. And at first she thought that was quite a, you know, I can you can imagine she might have thought that as a somewhat radical idea. Not that she wasn't open to the idea that nutrition was important because she'd done some clinical trials in the 80s 
on elimination diets with children with ADHD. So she did know there was an important, there was an importance, but to, to have some, you know, fairly lay individuals, families come along and suggest that they could treat really serious psychiatric conditions certainly was uh, challenging for her worldview, but she decided to do some clinical trials and she did those towards the end of my PhD. And then when I was doing a postdoc, I'd moved away by then. I was at that point in Toronto at the hospital for, for sick children. And um, they, she found and, and, and uh, reported and observed that people with that bipolar disorder who were in her preliminary clinical trial um, got better or had a reduction, a significant reduction in their symptoms alongside a significant reduction in the use of medications. So she reported on these findings and that intrigued her and she shared them with me and equally that it was intriguing for me as well, because at that point I was no longer a naive graduate student who thought that conventional treatments treated everyone and were helpful for most people. I was certainly at that point recognizing the limitations of our current treatments and not enough people are getting well. If we, if people were getting well with our current treatments, we wouldn't have a mental health crisis. We wouldn't have an escalation in the number of people who are struggling with a mental health issue. It would stay steady, but because we could, we continue to treat people and because they don't get well, then that you end up with this adding up of more and more people struggling with mental health problems. So as a scientist, you know, at this point, I was an academic at the University of Canterbury. I'd moved to New Zealand. And, you know, as a scientist, you have to, it's our role to, try, to study new ideas, no matter how much they might contravene the current way of thinking. And so I started some clinical trials um, by about 2008, 2009. And um, I observed the same thing that she had been observing, which was that, you know, many people, um, not all, but many people had really some substantial changes and improvements in their symptoms that we really owed it to the public to continue to investigate. So I guess that's a long-winded story about how I ended up yeah. doing these trials. And it hasn't been easy, right? Because it's been ruffling a lot mm -hmm. of feathers. Um, in general, yeah. it's just not well accepted that there is there's an answer outside of nutrition. Even um, with you, you've had like years and years of research that you've backed this up with, but there's still this hesitation within the medical community to kind of accept this and, and bring it on into their practice. I mean, it's changing now a little bit. So it's changing in um, into this, like, this world of functional medicine or integrative health, but by and large, people are still more um, more hesitant to bring that into their practice. And that's probably why um, we're still seeing, like you said, these one in five or 2,000 in like in every 10,000 people having a mental health problem. It's mm -hmm. huge. Like, and, and it's starting exactly. earlier. Exactly. Yes. And um, so there's a point where I think we all have to be first, first and foremost, uh, honest about the current data about the current mental health crisis and really acknowledge the limitations associated with our current treatments. And it's not that current treatments don't help some people. Of course they do. Of course there are people who get well on them, but we have to be honest that not enough people are getting well. And so if we can acknowledge that, then I think people may be more open to the idea of you know, looking at other options and other treatments. As long as we think that the conventional treatments are working, 
then people aren't going to even care about what else might be out there. So we do need to have a shift in how we perceive the effectiveness of our current treatments. And that's been gradually happening over the last decade yeah. that more and more people are recognizing that there's, you know, that some of, you know, that there's a publication bias, not, you know, negative trials aren't published. So that makes medications look better than they are. Um, that, you know, that, that's, that certainly influences um, the, our understanding of how many, with the percentage of people who are getting better. So when you ne have negative trials published, then you recognize that in fact, fewer people are getting better than we thought. If we can just be honest about our patients that we see, I mean, I've seen enough people over the years to know that I've heard enough stories of people telling me that they haven't gotten well with medications and yet they are on multiple medications. And, but then when they raise other options with their prescribers, it's often, it's, it's dismissed. And I think that's where prescribers have a duty to become informed. And, you know, they, it's fair enough that they're going to be skeptical about something that doesn't fit well with the medical model, although this really does fit very well with medical model or biological model or physiological model or, you know, it's our, our basic biochemistry. So, but I understand when they've been trained in a certain way of thinking, this, this idea is, could be quite jarring. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. Over here on this podcast, our focus is on children, right? And so mm -hmm. to expect that these children will be on these medications for life. I mean, you're, you're seeing someone who's two years old coming in and then expecting that they're going to stay on these um, for like mm. the rest of their life is, is huge, yeah. right? And then yeah. really looking into other options that are out there. And I think I just wanted to like jump into that. What is it about nutrition, right? you've done a lot of research that supports um, the, the use of nutrition. So what is it about that that is helping um, these children or even you know, adults with, with mental health conditions? How is it helping them? Sure. Um, I mean, that's a great question. And it's, it'll take me a bit to answer it. And I think there's a lot of threads to it as well. Um, one of them, though, that I think is the elephant in the room that we need to acknowledge that is playing a role, I think, in the deterioration of our health of our children is that we are eating more and more ultra processed food. And so we need to look at the food environment. And, our, and that's what our research points to is it's acknowledging and, and, and recognizing that our food and that environment is not adequately supporting our brain. So we need to first recognize that. And so ultra processed food essentially um, is marketed to the public as you know, being low in sugar and low in fat and low in, in calories and, you know, low in sodium, uh, but where they're not marketed and what's been, it's missing in that conversation is that they are not marketed with respect to their density of micronutrients and that's your minerals and vitamins. And so it's no surprise that the public is unaware of the importance of micronutrients because they're not highlighted on ultra processed food. If you look on food packaging, you look at nutritional facts, what you know about is fats, carbs, and proteins, but there is very, very little information about the micronutrient content. So, you know, there might be one or two or three or four at the most that are listed, you know, maybe zinc or vitamin C or vitamin D, but you do not have the full array of the about 30 vitamins and minerals that are essential for life. If they were to list that 30, there would be a lot of zeros. 
because they just simply don't have those nutrients in them at all. Whereas if you look at any whole food, real food, like a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a piece of broccoli or, or kale or nuts or lentils or beans, then you would see the full array of those nutrients would be represented in all of foods and all of those foods to different degrees and different proportions, but you're likely to find them in those real foods. So the first thing that has to happen is that we need to better understand and have educate the public on the micronutrients. It's not that macronutrients aren't important, but we really need, it's been to the detriment of understanding about micronutrients. So um, micronutrients, yes. So why should we care about micronutrients? And that's your sort of part of your question. And that is that micronutrients are essential for all of the brain activity. So brain metabolism, what's happening in the brain, making neurotransmitters, making enzymes, making hormones, they're all completely dependent on the availability of micronutrients. And that's something that I, that's missing in education on biochemistry, to be honest, if we look at what people are taught about the, the various uh, enzymatic reactions that are happening in the brain, oftentimes people don't know or not taught that there are not just enzymes that are required for a, you know chemical A to be converted to chemical B, but that you also need what's called cofactors and they support the activity of the enzymes and cofactors are minerals and vitamins. And there is, there's no special one. They're all needed at different stages of different reactions. So to make a, a neurotransmitter like serotonin or dopamine, you, we know that we need those cofactors alongside enzymes for us to make these very, very important um, regulators of emotion or of your attention or your impulsivity, they're, they're required. But that's not something that people generally know. So that's one of the things we really wanted to do is educate in the book. Um, sorry. <coughs> There's many other uh, reactions that are happening, like the making of energy in our body requires nutrients or regulating our, gen our genes or our DNA requires nutrients. So a whole host of things that, that are happening that are completely dependent on these micronutrients. So I don't know if I've answered your question. I have no idea. Um, I certainly talked a little bit about nutrition. And, and so, you know, a lot of people, like their question will be, but we are, you know, to some extent, eating foods that, that, that are not ultra processed. So they might be eating something or they're packaged in such a way where they're always right on the front of the label. It says fortified with like a hundred yeah. different things. But if you actually look back into seeing what it's really fortified with, it's not really giving you much or it's, uh, it's synthetically put together. So again, it's, it's worse for your body. How can we kind of get around this whole idea that where our bodies are actually not getting what they need optimally, right? So we might be getting some, but we're not really getting what we need to function um, at an mm -hmm. optimal level. It's, it's not okay anymore to kind of function at a, at a subpower level where, you know, you're maybe getting a few vitamins here and there during the day. How, how can we come around that idea? How can we tell parents that it's, you know, we need to function at a better level. Mm. We need to give our kids a lot more than what we are currently mm. eating. I think I, th I I I hope that the answer is education and knowledge that helping people understand 
what it is, what are the downsides of ultra processed food, um, what it what they provide and what they don't provide. And it and it's so that ha- that can happen at an individual level that can happen, you know, with a psychologist talking to parents. But I think it could also come at a governmental level that they start to really emphasize, you know, we've we had such a focus on sugar. And yeah, that's important. Absolutely. We need to be reducing our consumption of processed, ultra processed sugar, the high fructose corn syrup that's added to ultra processed food. Not so much the sugar, natural sugars that are in fruits. Although of course, you know, you shouldn't be consuming massive amounts of that. But then if if you're eating a fruit as it is intended off the tree, you're not going to overconsume a lot of fruit. Like, you know, you know, you might have one or two oranges a day, but you wouldn't have a massive amount unless you're juicing it or doing something else to it, but you can get a lot of sugar from ultra processed food. So, but the conversation has been about sugar. And so I'm encouraging an expansion of that conversation to say, it's not just about looking at the sugar content. It's about looking at this micronutrient content. And so there's a lot of, I think some of the the responsibility should come to again, food packaging and how they, the information that they provide, should they be providing the full array of the, our essential nutrients that we're supposed to be consuming? Because I think that might starkly highlight the lack of these nutrients in our food. Does that need to happen? Will that help parents better understand uh, the content? It's, un, you know, it's just, I think it's a really hard thing for parents to navigate is, is things like going to the supermarket. I don't know about in your country, but here we have uh, star ratings. Other places have these traffic light systems on their food. Well, you know, they're, they're somewhat useful, but for the most part, I think all they do is tell you what's not in the food rather than what is in the food. So when you have a system that is designed to highlight what's not in your food, seems to me really missing something that's really important. And that is, I, sh- I, I want to know what's in my food, not what's not in my food. <laughs> so, so just make, helping people understand that's how the star ratings and the green light traffic systems are developed is based on it, you know, low in saturated fats and energy and um, low in calories or sugar, sodium, but not really um, about what's in there. Maybe, you know, there's one star or a little bit of a emphasis on having fortified with one nutrient, as you mentioned, fortification, but fortification, they never fortify with the full array of nutrients. They only fortify with a few, maybe a few B vitamins and at best a few minerals. They're not giving the whole array. Yeah. And so when we're looking at these um, micronutrients, right, vitamins and minerals, what are we looking at? So you did mention having 30 different that are important for us to function. But if parents are trying to think about these um, vitamins and minerals, what do they need to know about? Like, which ones are they? How do they help their children, their brain function? Mm -hmm. I know it can be like a long answer, and there's so many of them. But, you know, just some main salient ones that they really need to kind of know about. Yeah. And so I, I guess I, I'm going to re I'm going to just push back a little bit on the, you know, trying to say, Oh, you must consume magnesium or you must consume zinc or iron because our research and our, and our, with our knowledge of biochemistry, the bottom line is there's no special uh, nutrient. Yes. Some are probably more essential than others, but we need them all. And so I think this focus on single magic bullet nutrients is 
perpetuating the idea that we're going to, if we just have that one thing, then we're going to be fine. And our research instead took the approach of giving the broad array of nutrients, the full array of those essential, those 30 or so essential nutrients, and then seeing whether or not that had a positive effect on mental health. So I would say that if parents are, if they can, the more they shift away from ultra processed foods to real whole foods, they'll do it. They'll, they'll tick the box right there. And then they don't need to worry about it because real foods have all of those essential nutrients in them. So then you don't need to read packages. So as long as you've got, you're following an essentially um, either a Mediterranean style diet or a traditional style diet. I mean, you, and uh, so just to, to focus on those whole foods, you pretty much, you'll do it. You know, if you're making sure you're eating a, a range of vitamin, you know, uh, vegetables and fruit, making sure you're eating legumes and nuts and seeds and fish, um, your, you know, your uh, grains, your, you know, some moderate amount of meat, depending on whether you're vegetarian or vegan, but the research suggests that a little bit of meat is probably good for your mental health. It's the best way of getting iron, for example. So is, you know, if you're following something that of eating foods that your grandmother would recognize as food, then I think you're getting, you know, you're probably 90% there. Um, and then it can be tweaked because some people have intolerances like to gluten or to dairy and uh, that, you know, that might influence the eat the foods that you eat. But the basic principle of re massively reducing the consumption of ultra processed foods and then increasing the consumption of the real whole foods, you're really a long, you're, you're going a long way towards being in the right place for feeding your child well. And then you don't need to, you really shouldn't have to worry too much about the mineral and vitamin con content because you're going to be getting it from those foods. Yeah. And, and I love starting off with food, right? It gets, it's such an easy, accessible way to, um, to start and to, to change focus. But mm. one of the yeah. things that at least I, and I've seen that um, in my practice as well, a lot of these children, they, are very, very selective in what they eat. So when we always tell parents that, you know, you need to create like a vast array of food that you want them to eat, the first question that they ask me is like, how should I do that? Like they are so um, selective, right? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't eat all of those. And I think that's one of um, the concerns as well that comes with all of this is just how addictive um, ultra processed food is to the brains of these children. I know. That I know. it's so hard to get them away from, from eating that. Which is kind I know. of driving um, the the imbalances that they might be having because they're not really eating whole nutrient food. Yep, exactly. But that requires not just a shift at the individual level. I think that requires a shift at a bigger level. You know, I think I'm currently in managed isolation, and I look at the the menu that for the children, and it's all processed, ultra processed food. There's no fruit and vegetables contained in there, so they have a choice. Like at the MIQ level you know, when they're making offerings of what the children should be eating to offer them things that are nourishing, you know, at the food canteens or the, you know, the, the lunch menus, if that exists in for schools, they always have choices about what foods they're going to eat. They're going to offer to children. It's just, we've, we've had a generation of children growing up in this incredibly toxic food environment that they've become addicted to. You're absolutely right. And we do need to start turning that around. 
And so that that's going to require everybody, everybody get, getting together and saying, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, okay, we understand how that we got here. We got here because um, these ultra processed food offered us incredible convenience. It probably assisted people like, you know, mothers to go back to work because food preparation wasn't as arduous as it was for their, their parents or grandparents. So there's, there's a reason how it happened. And now it's about kind of reflecting on that and sometimes going, well, you know what, we did that. Um, but it's had, it's come with a lot of risks and a lot of side effects that we need to really be cognizant about and be true to and kind of start having that continue to have that conversation about, well, we kind of got that one wrong. There's not a single study that's shown that the Western diet has been good for our health in terms of our mental or physical health. So at what point are we going to continue to go down this, you know, this, this route that we see, we can see the end result of it. We've already seen it. We see the rise in chronic illness and chronic diseases and mental health is just one of them. So it's, I mean, it goes alongside obesity and cardiovascular problems and diabetes, et cetera they all go hand in hand. They all play that food environment is playing a huge role, a significant role in the contribution towards the expression of these diseases. So yeah, um, I think I, I, I appreciate at an individual level, it's really tough. So we need everybody to be supporting those parents to be able to shift that food environment for their children. Yeah. And it's hard. It's like, it's like anything else. It's like, you know, the gaming or the, the devices or all of these things It has to be, you know, we have to pull pull together to try to make sure that it's not an excess. Yeah. It's like that collective, right. We need to come together as that and then try to make those changes. One of the things that, um, that I really loved reading in your book. And then I think I even wrote that down somewhere. It was just, and it's so simple. It's what we eat today and how we nourish our body today affects the way that our brain functions tomorrow. Right. It's yeah. so mm-hmm. simple, but it's so mm-hmm. profound. Right. Um, if we're making these changes in our children's diet there, it's, it's, we, we need to have that hope that we will see that improvement in our kids the next day. It might not be as simplistic yeah. as that. It might take work, but that yeah. there is that hope that it is possible. Exactly. And that's where sometimes the multi-nutrient approach and the supplementation approach can be somewhat helpful for children as well as their parents is that doing a, a full dietary overhaul can be hard. And if you're a stressed parent and your child is non-compliant and aggressive and tantruming, maybe it is a good place to start with the supplementation and then to start delving into changing the diet but we've had lots of lots of people who have written to me over the uh, to my lab over the years telling me about how they changed their child's diet and that that had a huge impact on their behavior but sometimes it might it, it might help in that journey to use the supplements to as a starting place although for the most part we do encourage food first yeah and so once that food had so we managed to kind of change food around but there is this element of supplementation like you bring up and and that's really how you did a lot of your research as well was supplementing um Mm -hmm. it's what what kind of supplementation should parents be looking at like we've already talked about it being broad spectrum right but Mm. does it does it have to be very individualized per child where dosages 
vary from child to child because you know no no two bodies are the same no two levels can be the same right and so how would that work yeah um well that's a good question as a as a researcher we can't individualize the treatment in a randomized control trial. That would be very difficult to do. I'm sure it's positive, possible, but it is pretty challenging to do. So you kind of need to give the, the same general thing to all of the kids. Now, we there was some movement and allowance within the clinical trial for them to increase or decrease the dose, depending on what was happening for the kid, even in the blinded phase where we didn't know if they were on placebo or micronutrients. So they could adjust the dose a little bit. And a lot of families kind of know, oh, that, you know, my child, this, maybe this is the dose is a little bit too high and they would just adjust it down a little bit. Um, But for the most part, going with the, the, you know, we, we just use a formula. There's no special, you know, formula out there. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of them that have been developed, but we do talk about all the different formulas that do have some research to support them for the treatment of mental health problems. We talk about them all in the book. And, you know, that's the starting point is just to take one of those formulas. It's, and it doesn't have to be individualized or, you know, special certain nutrients are given. I know a lot of practitioners do it that way. And I, you know, I've, I heard, hear a lot about that happening where, you know, they go to see somebody and they just prescribe some very specific single nutrients that that person needs. And, but what has never, ever happened is a, a study that compares this very personalized and what I would say quite an expensive and labor intensive approach versus the approach that we've done, which is just give everybody the same nutrients pretty much at the same dose, plus or minus a little bit, and then see whether or not the outcomes are the same or different. If you need that, if you really, that personalized approach is so essential, then that group should do better. My hunch is that it wouldn't. Um, that I don't think we have that level of nuance yet in being able to know absolutely what people need. And we know that from blood work, there are some nutrient levels that are always going to look normal, even though you may need more or less of something. So, and then we also know that we have a lot of individual difference that means that if you were to do a blood test, some people may look normal but that's not necessarily reflecting what is their individual need. So they need, may need more. And I've heard of a lot of cases like that, where people say they got their blood, their, their nutrients tested, they looked normal and yet they needed a lot more. So I think the blood tests are useful sometimes at identifying deficiency, but we just need to be really careful about using them to fully direct treatment because the data simply don't support that. We've looked at this from our own data because we have a lot of blood work from from the kids and adults who have gone through our clinical trials. So we can ask the question of, if you came in deficient, do you do better than those people? Like you'd expect that only the ones who were deficient would do well and respond to the treatment and that people who are normal, well, they, they they shouldn't benefit from additional nutrients. And in fact, you see that both groups benefit a little bit slight advantage of those who are deficient, but you still have, you know, about half of the people who were looking normal benefiting from the treatment. So if we use nutrient levels to direct treatment, those people would miss out on the opportunity of using nutrients to potentially help them with their psychiatric problems. So that's why I'm not a big fan of those testing. 
and personalized approach because I just don't think the science supports it at this stage and I haven't seen the trial yeah and so a lot of these um people that bid on your trials and who have been on these supplements are they supposed to stay on these supplements um for like a long period of time is it something that's um you know time consuming how does that work so I think it depends on what you're targeting our experience with say ADHD which is probably common um problem that you're faced that the the families that you're treating face with them, we followed them over a year. So that's, that's how we followed them out to a year and we just follow them naturalistically and see what happens to them. And some of them stay on nutrients and they continue to do well. In fact, they probably do a bit better, but some of them stop. And about 20% of those people who stop continue to do well. So that tells you that there are some people who can do well with just acute treatment. But for the most part, most of them regress and go back to how they were before they before the treatment. So that means, yeah, it could potentially be a long-term uh, treatment. I know of many people in Christchurch who have been taking the nutrients for years now. And I know that they will have given, you know, at time from time to time, they'll have stopped their nutrients and they will have gotten unwell, recognized it and gone back to them. So there, you know, there's nothing to stop people from giving that a go. Something else, though, that can happen, which may mean that you don't need quite the same level or the same dose, is that when they learn that nutrients can be so powerful and have such a huge effect and benefit for their psychiatric problems, such that some of them go into remission, then they might also then start to contemplate, maybe I need to clean up my diet a bit more and try to get these nutrients from food first. And then they might be able to sometimes get away with a lower dose in some cases, I th- we really think that there are people who are more vulnerable to either the deficiencies that are that can exist in our food, nutrient deficiencies, even if you're eating well. Some foods are just more deficient, a consequence of the agricultural processes, the use of herbicides, you know, just not remineralizing the soil. Those types of things can influence the nutrient density. So some people may be more vulnerable to those deficiencies. Some people, because of just overall life, the life is just harder for some people. There's more stressors. They, that sort of probably increases their nutritional needs. So that could influence for some people why they might need more nutrients than what they can get out of their food. So it, it kind of varies on an individual, unfortunately, at an individual level about whether or not you need to stay on them long term. In our stress studies, um, and we've done quite a few of those now, what we've learned is that they probably, you know, it's, it's something that you can do for a short period of time when you're under acute stress, you may not necessarily need to stay on the nutrients and people seem to do quite well in the long term in, in those situations. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of the parents listening, and I think um, they would love to get some, some case studies or, or just, you know, some stories from you of how kids with either ADHD or ODD or, you know, different yeah. Um, behavior um, disorders like that, how they've had an improvement, right? Using sure. Any, any, yeah. Any stories of hope like that for parents? Sure. We have many of them, many, many stories of hope. But again, you know, I do want to reiterate, not everyone gets better. And that, that also may reflect that nutrition isn't the only nutritional deficiency isn't the only thing that causes mental health issues. There's a whole host of other environmental factors and trauma and deprivation, poverty, and, you know, racism, colonization, all kinds of other things can impact us. 
um, we we have a case in the there's we have a lot of cases described in the book. Um, one case that I, was somebody that I personally had a lot to do with was Isaiah, and he's very happy for us to name him and talk about him. And he came to us, um, I think he was about nine years a, of age. He had been expelled from many schools at this point. His parents were at a wit's end about what to do with him. He had been diagnosed with ODD and ADHD and a whole host of challenges like dyslexia and dyspraxia. Um, and he um, came to us. It was like the last, you know, we were the last stop, I think, in that he'd been on stimulants and that hadn't helped and it caused a cardio cardiac effect for him. So he had to stop the stimulants. And so none of the schools would have him. And, you know, he was aggressive and violent and you could see the trajectory. If he kept going this way, you could just, you could, you knew what kind of kid this would, this kid would end up as. He came into the trial and um, at this point, we now know that he was randomized to the micronutrients, but at the time we didn't. Um, and it, we, even within a couple of weeks, there was just, they, it's, it's, it can be quite subtle, but you start to notice changes. They're just better able to regulate themselves and calm themselves down and they're less reactive. So, you know, there'll be parents out there who will, who will be very familiar with the, you know, trying to get their child to do something and then a tantrum happens or, or a change happens and a tantrum happens. There's change in environment and you get the tantrum. These kids, they just, that seems to just, it just doesn't set them off anymore. And that's really quite, I think that's huge for parents who are trying to get from A to B, you know, that they, that, that they can suddenly be able to do that and not have a meltdown or that their kid is, doesn't, you know, isn't just, it's not like walking on eggshells all the time for them. So those subtle changes started to happen for Zaya. And then they just got bigger and bigger. The benefits got bigger and bigger. And he, you know, he's, I've, I saw him, about three months ago, he's 17 now. So that's a long time. I mean, that's an eight year, eight years since he was in our, our clinical trial. And, you know, he's, he's succeeding at school. He's really interested in psychology, philosophy. Um, he's just a really neat kid. Uh, he's a bit quirky, but really lovely and um, engaged and, and has, you know, has friends. He loves skateboarding. We met him at the skateboard park and he just was, that's what he wanted to do. He off, got, went off and, and was skateboarding and, and he's, he's been working at that for years and years. And he's, he's, you know, at, at grade level, he's where he should be at. And he'd been failing and he had, he was years behind. He wasn't able to tie his shoelaces. He wasn't able to read and all of those things have really caught up. So the family are incredibly grateful for what happened for them and that they're, that this was such a huge turnaround for their child. And that's all you want as a parent, isn't it? You want the best for your, your child and the best outcome for them. And for some people, this, the micronutrients really are a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so, there does tend to be this um, this kickback that you can get that it's too simplistic. It's too good to be true, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's something that your research has actually substantiated. That it's not. Yeah. It's it's not just a fluke, or it's not something that just no. happened for a few kids and not for others. I mean, you did say that there are some kids that might not show as much improvement because there are other mm. factors that we need to look at. But but it is something that there is something to it, right? That we are seeing changes like, like this. Yeah. Mentioned. Well, that's right. I mean, there, the, the, 
the way the gold standard way of assessing that is doing these randomized control trials where they're placebo controlled. And so that's what we've conducted. We've conducted those types of trials and we've shown that the micronutrients in, you know, for many symptoms, but not all the micronutrients outperform the placebo. <coughs> so we've established, we've established that it's evidence-based. That's how you establish whether or not a drug should be used and marketed. So we've used the same criteria, the same study designs in order to establish that. So if you want to ignore it, then that's, um, you know, the, that people have that right to ignore it, but that means that they are ignoring evidence-based data. And, you know, there's a point where hopefully you realize that that's unethical to do that. Um, and, and even not good practice to ignore the data. So we feel, feel pretty confident with the different studies, the different designs that we've done, and it's been really robust over the years. And we've tried different ways of looking at the question and we've looked at different conditions and symptoms and it doesn't, it works better for some conditions over others. I mean, the one thing I would say that is the most helpful for is emotional dysregulation. And that's not a diagnosis that captures, but that transcends most diagnoses. You'll see emotional dysregulation and mood disorders and ADHD and ODD in um, anxiety disorders. So it really transcends across the board, but that's what I, you know, the clincher is for me is that you have this reduction and they're just, they're just even more, even, even people and calmer and um, better able to regulate themselves and manage and be more resilient. I think really is a bottom, a fundamental thing is more resilient. And I think that's because they, the fuel tank is full is that you're providing the, the, the brain with the fuel that it needs to operate. So, you know, it's just like a car. If it's run out of gas, it's not going to operate. Same thing with your brain. If you don't give it the nutrients, it's not going to run. So it's pretty simple if you think about it that way. But we got diverted for like a, about a hundred years, just looking at single nutrient interventions. And that might be possibly why people are kind of skeptical or don't, or think that this is, this is too simple. It's because we looked at it in the wrong way. And so now that we're looking at it in a different way and, and putting the broad array of nutrients together and seeing what happens to brain health, we're starting to see a lot bigger changes. And in terms of quantifying that for your listener, it, our research is pretty consistent about showing about 50% of people are what we call much to very much improved. So substantial, noticeable benefit for those people might still have some symptoms, but overall functioning way better. 30% are seeing some mild benefit, but there's still a lot happening that needs changing. And then there's this 20% where we don't see any benefit at all. We don't make people worse very often, but there's that 20% where we see very little change. And it puzzles me kind of, you know, and I say, you know, wake up, you know, that keeps me up at night kind of going, why? What is it about them? We've tried to figure that out. We've tried to look at, you know, is it is it severity of illness or is it, um, you know, gender or is it, you know, is, is it uh, IQ? Is it BMI? I don't know. You, you know, you name it. We've tried to look to see whether or not there's some kind of predictor of why somebody may not respond to the nutrients. We haven't, I've been able to identify what that is at this stage. So it's worth giving it a go. Um, but there's just this small, this small percentage of people who don't seem to, to get well. Important to though add is that, uh, all our, our all our research is done on people who are unmedicated, 
And so there are many people out there who are medicated and those numbers are probably quite different because medication comp just complicates the picture. Uh, and that's because um, what we've observed clinically over the years is that there's likely what we call drug nutrient interactions. So the prescriber really needs to get involved in the adjust, adjustment of the doses of the medications if a family decides to go down this route. And, you know, one last thing before, I know that we've been talking a lot about children, but just to, to give listeners, because a lot of the listeners are adults, that this, um, the way that you've been focusing on, on nutrients for children and, and their mental health, it's been working for adults as well, whether it's been, mm-hmm. um, yeah. whether it's been anxiety or depression or schizophrenia, or bipolar, you know, you name it, it's, it's not just something that has shown improvement in children, but even in complex medical condition, um, mental conditions in adults. Yes, that's right. Adults have made, are being more, we've done studies with adults with ADHD and those, they were all unmedicated. Um, there's also, there are clinical trials that have been done with bipolar, but they're not randomized, they're not placebo controlled trials, it's been too difficult to run those. And that's because of the complexity associated with these medications, um, that they're so often medicated, the same goes for that makes it more difficult to study the nutrients with psychosis. So there are lots of case studies out there of using the nutrients to treat psychosis and bipolar disorder. But that there were unfortunately, we're limited by just those mainly case studies a little bit of these of, of long-term observations, but not controlled trials, unfortunately, in those areas. Um, but we've helped people with, um, with struggling with anxiety, stress, PTSD, symptoms following a, a major stressor. That's because of living in Christchurch where there's been earthquakes and, and other events. So um, uh, I'm trying to think what else. Um, PMS, we had one study, we had one student did a study on looking at PMS and benefits of nutrients just to help alleviate the, the symptoms that come along with the menstrual cycle, quite interesting, um, and lots of benefit for people with that, those challenges. So yeah, we've, you know, we're delving in and we keep going, we're, we're now looking at more mood, mood in community samples, mood um, related to pregnancy. So we're looking at whether or not we can help women who are struggling with mood issues during pregnancy because they have so few options for them at the moment yeah well this has been amazing thank you so much for you're very welcome all of this information and i just hope that it gives parents hope and that there are options out there for them you know beyond the conventional options that are given to them um look those up where can parents find you more information from you your book yeah, I will. I would say the first step for parents who are hearing this and wanting to know more, I would just encourage them to get hold of the book, The Better Brain, um, co-authored by myself, Julia Rutledge and Bonnie Kaplan. And that's a great, I think that's really a great start, I hope, because we wrote it for the lay public. It's not, it's, we've write it, written it to be understandable, to be readable, um, and, and engaging lots of stories, lots of recipes, lots of of information on where to source the nutrients. So I would say that's the best place to start. It really is. It's all in there. Yeah, I totally agree. I love reading it. Um, thank you so oh, much good. for coming on. And thank you for all the research and the work. You're welcome. You for everybody. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and spending your precious time with us. 
at Helping Children Thrive. If you find this podcast helpful, please share it with your family, friends, and others who may benefit. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on the review section of Apple Podcast. This will help other parents, caregivers, and professionals find this show more easily. Visit momenasaleemcoaching.com to post comments on today's show or ask any questions about upcoming episodes. And sign up to receive a weekly update. Helping Children Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified healthcare professional. The information shared here is not intended to diagnose and treat your child. Before implementing anything discussed here on the podcast, make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner. See you all next week.